listening to the Game on Glio podcast with Shannon Traphagen. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of being diagnosed with brain cancer, including glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or visit our website, The Game on Glio Podcast, for insights and guest snapshots. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. This podcast is in partnership with Brains for the Cure. Learn more at brainsforthecure.org. Good morning, everybody. I was thinking about what I wanted to say going into this last episode of season one. I can't believe we've accomplished an entire season of a podcast centered around brain cancer stories, journeys, and grief and loss. I'm absolutely amazed at what we have put together and what we have done and how far we've come. And I am so excited for the journey ahead and the start of season two, which is just so remarkable. As I was thinking about what I wanted to say going into today's episode, which happens to be about pediatric brain cancer, not exactly a topic that is easy to discuss. And I was brought back to a post I did a couple of years ago from the movie Frozen 2. It seemed fitting that as we talk about pediatric brain cancer. We talk about this amazing, wonderful movie that inspires and entertains both children and adults alike. It was a specific clip from a conversation that the character Anna has with the character Lieutenant Destin. And it starts out with him saying, when you think you found your way, life will throw you onto a new path. And Anna says, what do you do when it does? He responds with, don't give up. Take it one step at a time and just do the next right thing, she replies. And he says, yeah, you got it. Each of us is on a journey, on a path of self-discovery. Just when we think we have got it figured out and we've got a handle on where our path and where our life is going, life throws us onto a new path, whether we want it to or not. And it's all about what we do how we respond when that happens, not giving up and doing the next right thing is so important. It's hard to believe that this is the journey that I am now on. I didn't foresee this path. I had a path set. I thought I had it figured out. Mike and I knew where we were going. We had a family on the way, children. We were becoming parents. I'd gotten published. His career was going well. We thought we had it figured out. And then life threw us both onto a new path. Life threw me onto a new path. And it is not something any of us could have foreseen. And I did not know what to do. I really didn't. After I lost my best friend, my soulmate, I had no idea what direction to go in. I didn't know where to start. I just knew that I didn't want to become lost. I didn't want 
to become depressed. I didn't want to become angry. I didn't blame anyone. And I worked really hard to maintain relationships and connections with those that were associated to both of us. And I lost a lot of secondary relationships after his death at no fault of mine. This is just the nature of it. And I've had a hard time accepting that. This journey has been one of extreme pain and emotion and fear and self-love. Like Christine Carlson, who was our guest on episode 11, said, I have one life vest. I can't fix everybody else. I can only fix me. And for a time, that was true. But I knew along the way that I wanted to find a way to help everybody else that has been affected by brain cancer. I wanted to let those of you who listen to this show know that you're not alone. You will never be alone on this journey. And if my podcast, my stories help in some small way, then that makes all the difference in the world. And I am so unbelievably and profoundly grateful for all that we are accomplishing on this journey. Not a path I saw myself on. And as we gear up for season two, the exciting part of that is we'll be incorporating not just brain cancer stories, but grief and loss stories, stories of resiliency, and great stories about new tech that's coming to light to help the brain cancer community. I'm also going to be doing a lot more fundraising for organizations as we go along to support foundations and organizations that are battling brain cancer that are finding cures and clinical trials and trying to find new ways to treat this. I will be working really hard to back them. Could I have foreseen that this is where I would be right now? No. And as I enter this new phase of my life, I have found moments of joy and happiness that I did not expect. And I still spend a great deal of time mourning the loss of my husband, mourning the life that should have been. I struggle to see friends and those I know with little kids, with their families, being parents, creating memories. It's hard to sit in an empty house, having lost so much. But I get up each and every day knowing that I am impacting and making a difference in somebody else's life. But I am helping somebody else by sharing my stories. And I'll continue to do that. Because it isn't just about the loss of a husband. It's about the loss of a life. It's about the loss of dreams that have been forsaken. It's about infertility. It is about the loss of children. And It's about renewal and self-discovery. For many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When something like this is dropped on your doorstep, whether you're the patient or the caregiver, you don't realize how you're going to respond until it's right in front of you. You don't realize how you're going to handle the information, how you're going to step up I was very surprised 
at the fight that I had inside of me, not only to save his life and to protect him, which I so desperately wanted to do. I just wanted to shield him from any hurt or fear. I loved him and still love him fiercely. But after he died, I was surprised at my capacity to pick myself up by the bootstraps and find a way, find a way forward, not just living, but finding a way to be a voice, to help others, to make a difference. I didn't realize how much I cared about that. And this is the path that I I now find myself on, something I am profoundly grateful for. Even in the moments of mourning, even in the moments of sadness or anxiety, I am so grateful that this is the journey that I'm on and I get to share this with all of you. And that's what life is all about. Isn't that what the movie Frozen 2 tells us? It's about self-discovery. So no matter what is laid before us, no matter how big or how small, if we truly look inside of ourselves, I think each and every one of you will find that you have a fight and a resiliency to keep going, to have hope and inspiration, and to just keep moving forward. We have so many amazing guests coming up for season two, and I cannot wait to dive in to share some of these new, great, wonderful stories with you. But in the meantime, we still have one episode left of season one, and I am so excited to have these two doctors on, Dr. Hoffman and Dr. Green, who are going to be talking about their journeys with pediatric brain cancer what they're seeing as the struggles and the barriers, how it differs from adult brain cancer, and give us some information into the work that they do day to day. And we will be talking to them next after a quick word from our sponsor. When my mom was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't know where to turn. How do I prepare myself as a caregiver? As a 22-year survivor, I've talked to hundreds of patients, mostly just listening and answering questions. I've visited a dozen of websites, some good, but none I thought truly met the needs of survivors and caregivers. I found what I was looking for in Brains for the Cure. This is a resource I've been looking for. Not only did I learn a lot, but it also reassured both of us that we are not alone. With resources and news from Brains for the Cure, Patients and caregivers can advocate for themselves and become decision makers in their own journeys, learn about treatment options and clinical trials, and connect with other patients, survivors, caregivers, and medical professionals through our ambassadors, online support groups, and personal stories. Find out more at www.brainsforthecure.org. Hi, we are back. Thank you so much for joining us on the very last episode of season one for the Game on Glio podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Lindsay Hoffman and Dr. Adam Green. Dr. Hoffman is the director for neuro-oncology and cancer predisposition at Phoenix Children's Hospital. She's also the chair of the International Diffuse Intrinsic Pontine Glioma Registry. 
Dr. Green is the Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and the Attending Neuro-Oncologist at Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Green focuses on novel targets and therapeutic strategies in the treatment of pediatric high-grade gliomas. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Shannon. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're kind of talking about a a pretty heavy-laden topic here when it comes to pediatric brain cancer. So I'd like to ask both of you, and Dr. Hoffman, we'll start with you. Why did each of you guys decide to go into pediatric brain cancer as your field of interest? For me, it was an early experience in my medical education that gave me personal insight into the sort of personal and family sides of of what we do every day, as well as the scientific side of pediatric Mm neuro-oncology. And so specifically, I was accepted into a summer internship program at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis. And this was between my first and second year of medical school. And I was assigned to work with a pediatric neuro-oncologist. And so I had the opportunity to interact with patients and their families, and then also to understand and be excited by the scientific aspect of pediatric neuro-oncology. And I found both to be very compelling. And the rest was history for me. Uh, And Dr. Green, what about you? Yeah, it's it's kind of a similar story. So I I was interested in in neuroscience. I had done some neuroscience research in college. I kind of always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I thought maybe I wanted to be a pediatric neurologist. And then when I got to medical school after first year, I got to work with a pediatric neuro-oncologist and it just seemed like a field where, you know, obviously, as you said, these are very heavy issues and, and very sick patients, but mm-hmm. um, I liked, you know, kind of having the chance to potentially, you know, save a, a patient, uh, you know, a, a long, as normal life as possible. Um, and to approach disease from the perspective where you can potentially cure them instead of just manage them. And it was obviously also this really um, amazing uh, field of research. And so, um, yeah, from there, I got involved with some research and got to meet a lot of patients and stayed with the field from there. Wow. You know, when you talk about the field of brain cancer and this this disease that has affected so many people's lives, you often don't think about the pediatric side of this, as I'm sure with any cancer diagnosis for for most people, um, thinking about a child being affected by such a traumatic and heavy disease. It's hard enough being an adult walking that path, let alone uh, being diagnosed in pediatrics. You guys both focus on some very unique aspects of this, and I'd like to dive into that a little bit. You know, Dr. Hoffman, for you, you're the chair of the DIPG, which I had just mentioned. Can you explain to us what that is a little bit? You know, I, I've never heard of intrinsic pontine, um, so I don't know if that's a, a specific type of glioma only found in children, or uh, what, what does the name actually represent? Yes. So um, DIPG or diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma really is a a much more pediatric tumor than an adult tumor. And it's a relatively rare tumor overall. Um, So the incidence is not perfectly known in the US, but it's about one to two patients per 100,000. Oh, wow. And it preferentially impacts children between ages five to seven and is rarely diagnosed in adults. So it really is, again, much more of a pediatric-specific tumor. And given its rarity, there has been 
focus on understanding the biology of the tumor and how we can formulate better treatments for this tumor. I just want to follow up with, you said between the ages of five to seven is the the most common, the typical. Is there a reasoning or is there research or something that, that explains why between the ages of five and seven, there's that vulnerability for the diagnosis? So that's a great question. And that is still being understood. And, and Dr. Green can weigh in on this too, just from a tumor biology perspective. But it is likely a neurodevelopmental hiccup or mistake that happens. We recognize there's a specific mutation associated with this tumor that that is characteristic of the tumor Mm -hmm. in a a histone gene. And um, it's believed to be as the brain is undergoing early development through childhood and then later adolescence, there's sort of a natural programming of of, um, ways that genes get turned on and off and in the way the brain is formed. And so this tumor is specific to the pons, which is the reference is the location of the tumor. I see. And again, we believe it's sort of a developmental pattern in terms of why the tumor arises at that specific age and in this location. Okay. Dr. Green, statistically, how many children in the U.S. are diagnosed with DIP gliomas and and subsequently GBM, uh, glioblastoma, because while we are talking about gliomas in general, there are kids that are diagnosed with glioblastoma. So can you talk a little bit to the statistics of how many children you guys are seeing in the area of these brain cancers? And are these the only two types of gliomas found in pediatric brain cancer? So we would say that uh, there are about 250 to 300 kids in the United States diagnosed with DIPGs each year. Mm-hmm. And then when we extend that out to the whole category of high-grade gliomas, which also in- includes glioblastoma, that would be more like maybe 500 children per year in the U.S. Okay. The nomenclature and the types of high-grade gliomas is somewhat, in, you know, it's always changing. People may have heard the term diffuse midline glioma too, which includes, you know, DIPGs are the most common type of diffuse midline gliomas, but then there are also other locations where those can occur. But, you know, when we talk about high grade gliomas, those are kind of the, the, the two main subtypes. Um, and when we talk about glioblastomas, those tend to be tumors that are more like the adult glioblastoma. So instead of occurring in a midline, you know, kind of brainstem or midbrain location like DIPG, those tend to occur in the larger parts of the brain, the cerebral hemispheres, although not always. Mm-hmm. There are other types of gliomas that occur in kids that we call low-grade gliomas. We don't tend to consider those brain cancers okay. because they don't really um, follow cancer-like behavior. Um, we don't call them benign because that kind of understates the kind of damage they can do. They, they can cause a lot of problems just by growing in the brain, mm-hmm. but they are definitely have a much, much better prognosis than DIPGs, glioblastomas, and other high-grade gliomas, which are certainly cancerous. Okay. And the low-grade gliomas are, are more common than the high-grade gliomas. And again, are, are sort of a, an, another type of tumor that we deal with, but something that is, is much more treatable and curable than high-grade gliomas. Now, uh, let me follow that up by asking, you know, so whether it's a high-grade glioma or a low-grade glioma, primarily with, uh, let's say, a low-grade because they seem to be uh, a bit more prevalent based on my understanding of what you're talking about, do you think there is a reasoning or a pattern or 
um, some type of driver that is causing these to occur in children this young? It's, it's a great question. You know, as far as we understand, the, the development of these tumors is really random in most cases. There are patients who have predispositions, so have genetic risk factors that are kind of present in all of their cells from birth that put them at risk for developing these kinds of tumors. Okay. So an example would be neurofibromatosis type 1, which is a, a cancer predisposition that, that's one of the most, most common, um, and that puts patients mostly at risk for low-grade gliomas. But again, th- we don't really know of risk factors. There is a risk factor of radiation that patients may have received for prior treatment of another type of cancer that put them at risk for these. But again, that's, that's very unusual. So really, in most cases, you know, unlike in adults where adults may have some you know, kind of lifestyle or other risk factors like that for cancer, those don't tend to be present in kids. And so most of these really just occur as, as random events. It's one cell that undergoes a very powerful genetic change randomly and then is able to form a tumor. I see. Dr. Hoffman, let me ask you this as kind of plays off of, you know, what Dr. Green was just saying. What does recovery and remission look like in the area of pediatric brain cancer patients versus that of adults? So that's a really great question. And it's actually important because there are definite distinctions in what children versus adults um, can handle just in terms of toxicity of, of treatment. So broadly speaking, children are able to handle much more toxic therapy than adults And they often sort of sail through a very intensive chemotherapy, which we use for a lot of tumors. And this type of chemotherapy would be intolerable to an adult, both in terms of organ function, as well as just the psychological impact of really intensive treatment. So children are, as we all know, amazingly resilient human beings, um, Mm -hmm. and the impacts of their treatment are really hard and but I would say harder on their parents often than the the children themselves who kind of get through very well for the most part. So I would say in terms of something unique to pediatrics, although you know this would be true for adults too, but I would say the hardest part of you know getting through treatment and getting into remission, a lot of that pertains to just their readjustment to re-entry into normal life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I use normal in sort of quotation marks because it is a new normal during therapy and then their adjustment back into life can be a little bit challenging, just readjusting to school and their peer groups um, and then still often feeling drained from, physically drained from different aspects of their treatment, which can take months and even in a lot of cases more than a year to kind of get back to themselves. I find that really interesting. Part of me as you're talking it makes me think that, gosh, I wish adults could handle the same type of treatments that that the children uh, tend to get. But children are so much more resilient as far as you know how young they are, and maybe that plays into how children handle chemo and radiation treatments and, and different therapeutics compared to adults. I am curious, are there treatment options available in pediatric cases that are not available or usable in adult cases? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So there are, so for instance, we will often use, and as Dr. Hoffman was re- referencing, additional chemotherapy medicines for 
pediatric hydroglioma's mm-hmm. that are not as commonly used in adult treatment. It's also the case that we know that the biology of pediatric hydrogliomas is different from that in adults. And so the genetic changes in the cells that drive the tumors to grow can be different as well. We, we know that. Mm-hmm. And we don't really have medicines kind of targeting all of those genetic changes, but we're starting to have some, you know, to have medicines directed at these genetic changes that are specific to the, the pediatric tumors, um, you know, allows us to have specific treatments for, for pediatric hygliomas that, that wouldn't be usable in adults. I completely agree. I think it depends a lot on the tumor type and the genetic driver of that tumor in terms of what, you know, medications are relevant. Mm-hmm. I was just going to add, though, sort of more broadly uh, related to that topic. So in terms of accessibility to new treatments, it's actually sort of the opposite direction of flow in terms of um, there are more treatments available for adult cancer than there are for pediatric cancer. So I just wanted to throw that in that that often we in pediatrics are using medicines that are already approved and in some cases have been used for a long time in adult oncology. Mm-hmm. And so it's when when a medication has proven itself useful in adults that it sort of trickles down in a lot of cases to pediatrics to have access to and to be able to move that forward in relevant cancers in kids. So I completely agree with Dr. Green that that it depends on the tumor type and the relevance of that medication. But there's more ability to get access in peds now versus 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot related to just incentives given to pharmaceutical companies and things to test these medications in children. And so we're in a much better space now than we used to be. But even still, pediatrics, we sometimes lack access to some medicines that could be relevant. Oh, that's interesting. And I never I never would have expected that the advancements in the way adults are treated is further along um, in some of the, the, the treatment options that they have afforded to them. Before I go into the next question, I am curious. I know that there is devices out there that are used in adults. And for example, the Optune device, you know, a cap that adults use when being treated with glioblastoma has been proven to kind of lengthen, um, you know, give some longevity to a person's life that's been diagnosed with glioblastoma is, do you know if that's something that is an option for children that are going through brain cancers, high-end gliomas like glioblastoma, or is that not something that's viable for them? It actually is viable, um, and it's currently in phase two trials in children, not just with high-grade glioma, but in other tumors that have come back, so tumors that are progressive or recurrent. Um, So that trial is being done through the Pediatric Brain Tumor Consortium, Mm -hmm. and I think is a really important trial because I, I think part of what's being understood is the just the practical nature of wearing a device like the one that you mentioned, mm-hmm. especially in a child who may be a little bit less tolerant of that, you know, having something adhered to their scalp. Mm-hmm. Um, the relevance it's shown in the adult uh, GBM space certainly makes it worthy of evaluating in, in the pediatric, uh, in different pediatric tumors. Mm-hmm. So part of that trial is focused on just the feasibility of getting that treatment or adhering to that treatment for children, but also then the efficacy mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think it's really exciting because, you know, if it's tolerated, we could then define what can we add to that treatment to augment it, to make it better. Absolutely. You know, medications by mouth that could be given at the same time, things like that. So I, I think it's really exciting and I'm glad it's being studied in children. Well, I'm glad that I brought it up then because I think that this is this is what this podcast is all about. So having relevance to these kind of uh, treatment options and technologies that might be afforded to, you know, both pediatric and adults, you know, for families to be aware that these things might be relevant and might be available for them is is vital. I want to follow this up with uh, and Dr. Hoffman, this is to you, the difference between pediatric CNS, I, I think it's pronounced German Noma, and an adult CNS GBM. And the reason I ask about this, so CNS is cerebral spinal, uh, the nervous system in the spine. And why is survival strong for these German Nomas, but not for these leptomeningeal cases, which is what tends to occur in adult glioblastoma cases? And there's a reason I, I poached this question, but I found this very interesting. So, you know, when we think of leptomeningeal disease, it's really, it's a way to describe how a tumor has spread. And there are certain tumors such as germinoma, as you referenced, that is actually pretty commonly spreads and may spread along the meninges. So that's the lining that covers the brain and the spine. When a disease or tumor has spread to the meninges, we call that leptomeningeal spread Tumors can also spread or metastasize in other ways um, where they kind of jump to a different area of the brain or the spine. And a lot of it comes down to, in terms of, you know, the prognosis when a tumor has spread leptomeningially or metastasized in any other way, a lot of it has to do with the, what kind of tumor it is in the first place. And um, a tumor like germinoma, for instance, is is very treatable and curable even when it has spread. And so it may be that we modify the treatment plan a little bit, and that pertains more to sort of where radiation is given if it has spread versus not. Mm-hmm. But germinoma is very, very responsive to both chemotherapy and to radiation, very differently than GBM or other tumors that may spread to the leptomeninges. So really it comes down to tumor biology and, and how responsive the tumor would be to the treatments that we have available. Okay. That makes sense. I, I've never heard of uh, germinoma before. So mm-hmm. as I was researching that and looking into these nuances of some of these different gliomas and different brain cancers, this stood out for me. And you know, up until, to be quite honest, until my husband passed away, I had never heard of leptomeningeal spread. And I didn't know that that was a thing when it came to GBM, because when you hear glioblastoma, they keep saying it tends to stay housed within the confines of the brain. It doesn't make it much better, but you don't expect it to metastasize into the cerebral spinal fluid. So um, that had caught us off guard um, because it, it seems to happen in very small subset of cases, which unfortunately included my husband. So when I was looking at the fact that this type of spread along the meninges can take place, even in pediatric cancers, uh, brain cancers, I was curious to see the difference between a leptomeningeal spread of GBM versus that type of spread for something like germinoma. So I appreciate the explanation of that. 
I think that that sort of speaks to the differences between pediatric and adult cancers in a lot of ways. So in the pediatric realm, we do have actually a fair number of tumor types that are prone to spread or disseminate. Mm. And that's pretty different than adult brain cancer, which, as you mentioned, does tend to stay put most of the time. Now, that's not always true. But in the pediatric realm, diseases like medulloblastoma or germ cell tumor, as you mentioned, germinoma is one type, we, in a lot of cases, expect that they might have spread at the time that we've found them. And so we treat according accordingly with radiation to broader areas of the brain and spine. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, chemotherapy, which we use pretty proactively in the pediatric realm, that, of course, addresses disease that has spread as well as the localized tumor. So it kind of speaks to the differences between the types of brain tumors in kids and adults as well. Okay. Okay. Dr. Green, I'd like to move to you. I'm curious to know, What type of new therapies or treatment options are becoming available in pediatric brain cancer that might not be on families' radars or on communities' radars that it might be walking this journey? So I'd say that they fall in a few different groups. One I kind of mentioned before was, you know, kind of these newer chemotherapy agents that instead of sort of attacking all of the tumor, you know, kind of fast dividing cells in the body, like older chemotherapies do, attack specific weaknesses in a specific patient's tumor. Mm -hmm. So that's one. There's also been a lot of effort toward harnessing the body's immune system against their cancer. And some of those treatments have been very successful in adult tumors and have become FDA approved. So that kind of references specific medicines called checkpoint inhibitors that sort of reveal hidden tumors to, to the body's immune system. Those as you've yet haven't been as successful in, in pediatric tumors, although there's still some attention. The treatments that have been exciting and kind of revolutionary in some other types of pediatric cancers, especially leukemias, mm-hmm. have been um, treatments called CAR T cells, which are basically white blood cells, cells that attack, usually attack infections that are removed from a patient's own body kind of taught to attack the patient's tumor and then put back into the body so they can attack the tumor. And as I said, those have been really successful in pediatric leukemias and are now being studied in in pediatric brain tumors. Um, And we know that it's harder for those cells to be successful when it's a solid tumor as opposed to a blood tumor like leukemia. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there's, there's a lot of excitement about those as well and some other, you know, kind of types of therapies harnessing the body's immune system. Two categories of newer options that are that are becoming available and certainly under under investigation in, in pediatric brain cancers. So to follow up with that and to kind of jump on this, you had recently done a study regarding potential new treatments for focal brainstem gliomas and DIPG. Can you tell us what you found with that and what does that mean for treatment options for children? Yeah, so my research is, as you said, focused on on finding new treatments against specific types of pediatric hygrogliomas and kind of studying those in the laboratory and then trying to bring the most successful ones to pediatrics. And so, you know, we've studied some new chemotherapy medicines, as I mentioned, that are kind of more focused on the specific cancer cells as opposed to kind of all the fast-fighting cells in the body. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, an upcoming clinical trial that will be open nationally studying one of those targeted medicines. 
We have also done some work looking at specific weaknesses that are in high Greek gliomas uh, in very, very young children, those who are either born with high Greek gliomas or are diagnosed with them in their first year of life. And, and we know that those tend to be very different okay. than those in older children or adults. Um, they actually tend to be a lot more curable. And we've found some specific reasons that that might be in terms of the genetic weaknesses in those tumors that are different than ones in older children and adults. Mm -hmm. And those are ones that we often do have, you know, kind of targeted medicines against that, as Dr. Hoffman mentioned, are used in adult cancers, other adult cancers, and now we can apply them to these you know, infant and congenital pediatric high-grade gliomas. So you mentioned within that, that there's a clinical trial coming up. Is that something where you guys are looking for pediatric patients to possibly get involved with? Is there information you want to share with everybody regarding the clinical trial so people know where to go or how to look for it? Yeah. So, so this particular trial will be um, open to kids who are newly diagnosed with, with DIPGs and other pediatric hygrogliomas okay. and will study targeted chemotherapy medicine called Selenexor, um, which is, is approved in a couple of adult cancers. And we've been studying it in pediatric hygrogliomas and it'll be combined with the radiation that those patients would receive as part of their initial therapy anyway. And we hope that the two treatments together will be kind of more effective than the sum of the individual effects. Okay. The website clinicaltrials.gov is a very useful resource for searching for new trials. You can search by you know, kind of specific disease okay. and specific you know, kind of keywords, uh, specific institutions where trials may be open. So that's another great resource. Okay, perfect. Dr. Hoffman, I'll throw this over to you. I'm curious, in, in dealing with pediatric uh, brain cancer patients, just, I mean, it's the same as with adult patients. You know, we there's this constant conversation around the reason, part of the reason it's so difficult to treat adult patients is this whole idea of being able to break the blood-brain barrier. And, and so I'm curious to know, you know, is it easier to break through the blood-brain barrier in treating pediatric cases versus adult cases? And if so, why? So that's a really important question and one that I don't have a perfect answer for. I don't think any of us do in terms of understanding the blood-brain barrier. So in terms of distinction between pediatric and adult, to my knowledge, there's not a great distinction between the blood-brain barrier in a child versus that in an adult. Okay. But it makes it equally formidable you know, between the two in that it is a challenge to overcome the ability to push drugs across that lining into the brain where it needs to act. And so th there are certain things like radiation therapy is well understood to open up the blood-brain barrier. And so sometimes there are efforts to try to utilize using medicines that we don't believe would cross the blood-brain barrier well in the context of radiation to get more across, for instance. Mm -hmm. I guess one unique thing in pediatrics related to the blood-brain barrier is that even for standard chemotherapy medicines, we talked earlier about tolerance of giving uh, chemotherapy in kids, th their tolerance is better. And so we use a fair amount of high-dose chemotherapy to the, the philosophy or theory being that we can push more chemo across the blood-brain barrier when we give it at very high doses. And again, children are much more apt to tolerate that than adults, and it's relevant for the diseases we treat. So there are some ways that we can 
maximize transport across the blood-brain barrier, but we certainly recognize, especially in the realm of newer targeted inhibitors, some of them have mechanisms or um, you know, it could be the size of the drug mm-hmm. molecularly that, that we understand that it probably won't get across the blood-brain barrier well. But I would say in general in pediatrics, there's more effort in understanding the concentration of the medicine that gets to the tumor or gets into the spinal fluid that cushions the brain and spinal cord. And so more and more we are building components or aspects of clinical trials that are getting pushed forward. We're building in this phase zero portion where a dose or two of the medication is given before a patient goes for a planned surgery. Things like that can help us really understand how much of that medication is getting where it needs to go. And based on that information, how likely do we think it will be to succeed And sometimes that will change the direction of how we use a medicine based on that information. Great answer. And I would also just add that, you know, there are a couple of, um, I think, exciting strategies that that are under investigation to try to um, kind of deal with with the blood-brain barrier um, in pediatric tumors. Mm -hmm. One is called um, focus ultrasound. Uh, So kind of applying ultrasound like would be, you know, used, you know, used in pregnancy, things like that, but in a very focused way to um, the area of the tumor um, and allowing um, that, that may kind of open the blood brain barrier to medicines that usually wouldn't be able to bypass it. The other is um, called convection enhanced delivery, which is basically inserting catheters directly into the tumor and kind of using that to deliver chemotherapy kind of directly into the tumor Mm -hmm. in advanced ways. And I'd say both of those strategies could be applied to both kids and adults, but are probably a little bit more likely to be successful in kids in types of tumors like DIPG and diffuse midline glioma because the, the tumors tend to be in a little bit more restricted anatomic area, whereas, you know, kind of glioblastomas that, as we've said, occur in both children and adults tend to be kind of so diffuse and widespread in a part of the brain that it can be kind of hard to, you know, kind of deliver a a local treatment to the whole thing. Um, So I think, you know, those are both under investigation, I'd say still fairly early in investigation, but hold a lot of promise for, you know, bypassing this issue of the blood-brain barrier in kids. Interesting. In children that go into remission from brain cancer and then grow into adulthood, is there a higher probability that they'll develop brain cancer or another type of cancer in adulthood because of the diagnosis of brain cancer in in childhood? So that's a really good question, Shannon. And it's not a one-size-fits-all scenario, but there are several factors that play into risk after a patient a child goes into remission from a primary cancer. So one of those pertains to their underlying genetics, which we've touched on a little bit. And we have learned more over time, really in recent years, that a person's inherited genetics does play a role in some cases. There would be some patients for whom their risk would be higher just because of their inherited genetics, what they inherited from their mom and their dad. And then separate from that, but can be related, a lot of that is based on the type of therapy that they received. Mm -hmm. You know, it's well known that certain types of chemotherapy can bring higher likelihood that they'll develop another type of cancer. For instance, a secondary leukemia 
unfortunately associated with some types of chemotherapy. And thankfully, the risk is is low, Mm -hmm. but not zero. And the other big category we think of is radiation, which we know can induce secondary tumors, including, unfortunately, secondary high-grade gliomas, which is very, very unfortunate, but also secondary meningiomas are, are the most common, often decades later. Oh, And so what's really important in PEDS, and that I, I think we do this pretty well, is, is to help guide patients and parents and families to understand their risks. Mm-hmm. So in fact, most programs have what we refer to often as kind of a long-term follow-up or a survivorship clinic. And we follow kids, even if they're diagnosed as a toddler, we'll follow them into their definitely late teens, if not early to mid twenties. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's really no, we're not going to boot them out the door to their primary doctor <laughs> or their, you know, or in the, into the adult realm very quickly. We, we hold on to our patients and really follow them through their childhood and adolescence and try to guide along the way. So they understand what their risks are based on what they received and, and do appropriate surveillance where necessary. Dr. Green, I'll ask you to follow up on what Dr. Hoffman was just saying. And then along with that, do you see a trend uh, with pediatric brain cancer where they go into remission and then develop brain cancer as an adult based on, is there a high recurrence of that brain cancer specifically in the adults? Yeah. So, so we would separate the development of a secondary cancer, which, which we would take to mean a cancer that develops directly because of the treatment that was received. And as Dr. Hoffman said, th- those do happen, but they're rare. So we're always trying to come up with treatments that are that are less toxic. And obviously that's a very important toxicity we think about and trying to minimize that risk. But with the treatments that are currently available, we always say that we need to treat the cancer that patients currently have mm-hmm. and then you know, kind of deal with what could happen later. That would be a separate issue from a recurrence of the cancer, which we would take to mean the original cancer that we've treated that then comes back despite treatment. That happens much more commonly. And, you know, with with something like pediatric hygroglioma is really the rule mm. that, you know, it's, it's very rare to be able to, to, to cure a patient of hygroglioma, completely. You know, which by which we mean you kind of make the tumor go away and never come back. Right. Those almost always recur. And when they recur, they're generally harder to treat because they're often resistant to the treatments that we've already used. Um, and it's sort of the most aggressive cells that are the ones that have survived the previous treatment. Okay. Dr. Hoffman, how do you feel the field of pediatric brain cancer is changing or evolving when it comes to understanding, diagnosing, and treating pediatric brain cancer? So I think it's evolving in a really exciting and hopeful direction. And I think from you know, the time I referenced, I was in medical school very early in my medical training and was struck by how amazing the field of pediatric neuro-oncology is. I feel like I haven't lost any of that excitement about how far we've come and how far we have yet to go, but but there's good momentum. Mm-hmm. So I think one aspect of that is the way tumors are classified and the better understanding we have of the genetic basis of pediatric brain cancer is constantly changing and we're understanding more and more and, and have deeper understanding of the mechanisms that drive pediatric brain cancer. And so this has in some ways made 
classification of pediatric brain tumors more challenging over time because it's gotten much more complex. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But it also represents that deep understanding of the biology. And I think what's hard for me, as I'm more on the clinical side than the laboratory science side of things, Mm -hmm. what I find challenging is just the disconnect or delay between how much we know about tumor biology and what we can do about it therapeutically. Mm -hmm. And so the science is far ahead of therapies and clinical trials. And we are making progress in terms of transitioning. You know, we often reference bench to bedside, Mm -hmm. taking something from the laboratory and and getting it into patients where it can do some good. Um, That transition is sometimes frustratingly slow. But in pediatric neuro-oncology specifically, there are numerous different clinical trials consortia people really working together collaboratively to to push forward trials as quickly as possible. So this gives me just a lot of hope in general. That's amazing to hear. And I that that hopefulness is something that resonates with a lot of our listeners um, because that's something they need. Frankly, we all need that when we're walking this path of dealing with something like brain cancer. Dr. Green, do you feel there are more advancements taking place in the area of pediatric brain cancer versus that of adults? You know, is there more progress being made in options that are maybe in the pipeline? Or do you feel it's kind of leveled out that they're fairly balanced? Yeah, Shannon, I I think it's mixed. And the issue in pediatrics gets to the the issue that Dr. Hoffman just brought up. Mm It's that there's been amazing work to understand the biology of pediatric brain cancers in, in the past 15 years. We really have a lot of understanding now. And I'd say, you know, on the pediatric side, once we have, you know, kind of new treatments to try, we're really good at all working together, um, you know, among institutions, among countries to test those treatments through cooperative clinical trials in patients. Mm-hmm. But making that link be, you know, so developing the treatments that that will, you know, kind of correspond to that biological understanding of the tumors that we have is the biggest challenge that we have. And that's because these tumors are so rare that, you know, that is a step, you know, kind of developing the the, the drugs and treatments um, that often is a step that that is led by the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. And these tumors are so rare that that there just isn't as much interest from the pharmaceutical industry in kind of taking that step. This is being addressed. I think that, you know, there are new pharmaceutical companies and biotechs companies that are specifically, you know, trying to address pediatric brain cancers, mm-hmm. but it's definitely a challenge. We're pretty resourceful as a field. Mm-hmm. So I think we are making progress, but it takes a lot of creativity and, and cooperation. But I, I, mm-hmm. I share Dr. Hoffman's optimism that, that we're close and we can do it. And I'm right there with both of you. Um, you know, just in within the, the numerous guests that I've had on from a, a clinical and laboratory um, perspective for the adult side of it, there is this underlying underpinning hope that this can get done. And the challenge seems to be fairly similar for both pediatric and adult. You know, there's this resonating theme that I've heard over and over again, uh, that it's in taking what can get done in the lab in understanding the nuances and the behaviors of brain cancer. And once something is found that could be potentially viable to work, 
then getting it into the clinical setting and getting it into the hands of patients and families. And that has been a common frustration and a common theme among all physicians and doctors, uh, neuro-oncologists, clinical researchers. Brain cancer is kind of a ticking clock. And so making sure that anything new that comes down the pipeline can get into the hands of, of patients is just so vital and so important. So I love hearing that there is just so much fight and so much hope in both the pediatric and the adult brain cancer. It's just, this work is just so necessary and so important. And it's people like you guys that kind of carry the families through. I I can't imagine being a parent and being handed this diagnosis that your child is going through brain cancer and they're six years old, seven years old. The, my, my question to both of you, and we'll kind of end with this, because of this type of work, because of the area that you guys are in and, and the work that you do, it's a heavy, heavy field and, and it, can, it can really weigh on people. What do each of you do to decompress and kind of leave the burdens if you will, um, at, at the door of work when you get home at the end of the day? Yeah. Um, I, I'd say, I mean, a couple of things, you know, I, I do really get a lot of, I guess, you know, kind of reassurance and happiness from being able to just talk directly with colleagues and, and families about these things. And also, you know, kind of have a combination of work in, the lab where we're trying to come up with new things and then taking that to the clinic and, you know, seeing those applied there and then taking the biggest problems we see in the clinic and bringing them back to the lab. I think, you know, kind of having that combination is good, but there definitely need some outside of work decompression as well. And I'd say that for me is getting outdoors, you know, music and, and spending time with family. Interesting. Any particular type of music that you really veer towards? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I sing and play piano, so I, I do some of that on my own. And then in terms of listening to music, I, I sort of uh, got got stuck in my my teenage years in terms of like '90s alternative rock. So that's that's oh, still I love my it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Uh, and Dr. Hoffman, what about you? I echo a lot of what Dr. Green said in terms of uh, just sort of speaking to the collegiality in our field. We spend a lot of time together, even at different institutions, different parts of the country. We all know each other really well mm-hmm. as friends, you know, and we see each other at conferences. And I think I think the fact that it is a small world makes it more fulfilling and enjoyable and also allows us to sort of bounce ideas off of each other and, and makes that, you know, the burden of some days a little bit lighter in that you can call your colleagues and and really work together. And then I think obviously spending as much time with family and friends outside of work as possible. I think that interfacing with children and families who've been through or are going through the worst really helps me see life through a lens of, of gratitude mm. and really helps me understand and keep in mind what's important. So I think that certainly there are days that are really hard, but in general, it's such an honor to walk on this journey with patients and families. And, and I feel like it gives me more than it takes away uh, in essentially every way. It's a unique kind of spiritual journey in a lot of ways. 
but I think there are many ways that this being in this field is is a blessing and one that really helps us get through the hard days. Well, I am very grateful to both of you for being in the field and for choosing to do this type of work. Um, without individuals like you, we wouldn't be as far along as we are on the journey, even if it seems like we still have a long ways to go. So I'm personally grateful to have all of you working on these very tough diagnoses and these tough cases. Any last thoughts or um, anywhere you would like to send listeners if they'd like to learn more about the work that you do or do a little bit of research on treatment options? Is there like a website or somewhere where you would like them to be directed to? So I'll chime in just on the DIPG front, which we we touched on, but for the, the DIPG registry, that is really meant as a resource, not only for the scientific community, but also for patients and families. And, and it offers a lot of insight just in terms of the right questions to ask and how to move along the journey of, of that diagnosis. So the website is dipgregistry.org. Again, for people who are going through that journey or know people who are, um, that's a great resource and, and website to go to. Okay. And you said that that registry, the the website is dipgregistry.org. Yes. Okay. And Dr. Green, what about on your side? I think the DIPG registry, and again, that, that Lindsay leads is a really wonderful resource, both for, for families and, and researchers. Mm-hmm. It's such a challenge for families to find reliable information. And again, there's no one best resource or best way to go about this. Families hopefully should rely on on their pediatric oncologist or neuro-oncologist for this information. I will have some of these resources and websites up on the GameOnGlioPodcast.com for all of you who are listening. And I'd like to thank our guests today, Dr. Lindsay Hoffman and Dr. Adam Green for joining us. Their bios will be up on the website as long as the links for any of the conversations that we were referencing here today. Thank you guys so much for joining us. This conversation is vital. It's important. It's one that needs to continue. And I am so grateful to know you and to have had you on the show today. Shannon, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure to be a part of. Yeah, thank you for having us and and for perpetuating this really important conversation. Well, it is a conversation we will continue to have. Um, I know going into season two, for all of you who are listening, we will actually have some guests on the show that are families of pediatric brain cancer patients currently. Um, And for all of you listening, thank you so much for joining us today. We will be right back after a quick break. Brains for the Cure is an innovative online resource to help brain tumor patients, survivors, and caregivers become advocates, educate themselves, and connect with others throughout each phase of their journey. We are proud to partner with the Game on Glio podcast. Visit brainsforthecure.org to learn more. It's hard to believe that we've just completed an entire first season of the Game on Glio podcast. When I started out on this journey, I couldn't possibly have imagined that this is what I would be doing or that these are the stories that I would be telling. I have heard so many amazing stories and journeys from so many of you, and not just guests on the show, but people who have reached out to us via email, Facebook, DM. So many of you have told us of how inspiring and life-changing listening to this podcast has been. 
I have met some of you in person at various events. Some of you have been referred to the podcast by doctors who are aware of it. When I look back at all that we've done this first season, I am so proud and so honored to be walking this journey with you. And I think Mike would be proud too. I started this to honor him, to honor his legacy, to honor the path that we had to walk, and to share bits and pieces of our journey, some of which I still have yet to share. And even though he is gone, I think he would be so proud of the fact that this is what I chose to do to find purpose and meaning in his death. I will admit, it is not always easy. And sometimes when I get done recording an episode, I have to take a few minutes to decompress. Sometimes I even cry. I get asked quite a bit, how can you immerse yourself in the very thing that took your husband's life? How can you stay embedded in this world of brain cancer? Doesn't that keep you from moving on, from moving forward? No, it doesn't keep me from moving forward. I think if anything, it's actually helped me move forward, even just a little bit. It is helping me heal by finding a way to help all of you, to help give vital information, to give you guys a platform, to share your harrowing journeys and stories, to give doctors a platform, to make appeals, to talk about the work that they're doing. It's actually helping me. I needed to find purpose in his death. I needed to find purpose in all of the loss that he and I had suffered before he even died. And doing this helps that. It helps me find purpose and meaning. If there is any way that I can inspire any of you to stay strong, to have fight, to keep going, then staying immersed in this, doing this type of work, there's no better reward than that. So thank you to all of you who are devoted and dedicated to the Game on Glio podcast. We wouldn't be here without all of you. I also want to give a very big thank you to our season one sponsor, Brains for the Cure. They were an amazing sponsor for us this season, and I am so grateful to have had them on board for season one. And I'm excited to say that we do have a second season coming up. And I am so unbelievably excited for that second season. And we have some great new sponsors who will be working with us, and I will be announcing those before we kick off in May of 2022 which we will begin with our very first episode, honoring a patient who is currently walking the path of glioblastoma. He is currently a three-year survivor. He will be running in the Pittsburgh Marathon in May, and I will be sharing a bit more about his story in April. But until then, we are working hard and diligently to get all of our stories put together. We have a jam-packed season with some months actually hosting two episodes and not just one. We will have some great video episodes with some very special guests along the way. And you'll be able to find those episodes on our YouTube channel at the Game on Glio podcast. So please like us on YouTube and subscribe because you'll be seeing some of those special features on that channel. And until we start season two, I would love for you guys all to continue following us Engage with us on Instagram and on Facebook at Game on Glio. Share your stories. Leave us comments. Let us know how this has helped you. We love talking to all of you, and I try so hard to answer 
all of your emails, your DMs. I try to get back to as many of you as I possibly can. I am an advocate for you, even as I continue my own healing journey. So thank you to all of you for listening to the Game on Glio podcast. This was an amazing last episode of season one. Again, season two kicks off at the end of May of 2022, so in just a couple of months. And along the way, we'll be sharing stories and tidbits and more information on both our Instagram page at Game on Glio podcast and on our Facebook page at Game on Glio. Enjoy your spring and I will see you guys for season two of the Game on Glio podcast.